0: So very good to see you this morning. I I got to tell you, this, this past week was a really good week. I hope you had a good week. Uh, Holly and I got to go to Red River, New Mexico, as we do last seven summers or so, and spend some time there at the Red River family encampment. There's it's awesome. And I just want to put a plug in for it. If you ever get a chance to go to the Red River family encampment, you should take that opportunity. There's a huge tent with like over a thousand Christians in there. The singing is great. The teaching is great. The preaching with one exception is great. It's all, it's all fantastic. And, and it would be cruel of me to tell you that the highs Last week, we're like in the 60s and 70s, so I won't even tell you that it was raining and cold up there, uh, but even, even at 100 degrees, there's no place I'd rather be than right here with you this morning, talking about what we have in Jesus and what our unstoppable Lord Jesus is accomplishing. Not not what Jesus is trying to accomplish. What Jesus is accomplishing and what Jesus will accomplish with or without me. With or without you. The question isn't, will God accomplish what he wants to accomplish? The question is, will you participate? Will I participate? We're starting a new series today, and it will run through the end of the month, and we're talking about God's vision for a multi-ethnic church. Now, I know when I say those words, when I, when I talk about ethnicity, when I talk about the tensions that exist between ethnic groups and how there are walls— that have existed and continue to exist between ethnic groups and how God wants to tear down those walls and how we need to acknowledge those walls and participate with God in tearing those down. I know that that makes some people uncomfortable. And you want to know why I know it makes some people uncomfortable? Because it makes me uncomfortable. This is an uncomfortable conversation. And it's not one that I relish. I don't relish talking about sin and what sin has done, not only in us and to us individually, but what sin has done to us as humanity. I don't relish that. I don't enjoy that. I'd rather just talk about happy things. I'd rather talk about things that we can all agree with and there won't be any disagreement and we won't make anybody uncomfortable. I'd rather talk about that. But I am compelled to preach the gospel the whole gospel, with all of its implications. And and you can't talk about the gospel. You can't preach the gospel. You can't study the Bible without talking about this, because this is one of the major themes of the Bible. In fact, we're studying the book of Acts, and you cannot talk about the book of Acts without talking about ethnic tensions that existed at that time. You you can't talk about the book of Acts without talking about prejudices and biases and people that believe that their ethnic group was superior to others. So the first reason I have to preach about this is because the Bible talks about it. The Bible talks about it at length. And so I have to talk about it. We have to talk about it. But the second reason, the second reason we have to talk about this is because it continues to exist. And our world is talking about it. And I, I refuse, I don't know about you, but I refuse to let political groups and secular groups and unbelieving groups be the only voice in this conversation. Amen. Jesus has something to say about the walls that we have constructed between ethnic groups. Jesus has something to say about tearing those walls down. Jesus has something to say about bringing people together into a multi-ethnic family. And, and so if we're going to talk about this, and again, we we have to talk about this, then I think it's important to define our terms. One, let's talk about the word ethnicity. The word ethnicity, sometimes we we conflate this with and and make it synonymous with race, but it's not. Race and ethnicity are two different things. When we say ethnicity, what we mean is a grouping of people based on things like shared culture, language, nationality, or history. Everybody, everybody belongs to an ethnic group. Everybody has an ethnicity. It's the people with whom you share culture the people with whom you share language, the the people with whom you share a history. It may or may not have anything to do with biology. It may have a lot to do with the culture that you share. I always found it kind of funny when I would go to the grocery store, I don't know if they still have this, but there would always be a section of one aisle that would say ethnic foods. And I always thought that was kind of funny because all food is ethnic food, right? It just depends on what ethnicity that food is popular with. And so when we talk about ethnicity, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about a group of people who have a shared history, who have a shared language, who have shared culture. It's what we its what we do. And that's not to imply that people of an ethnic group, and again, every single one of us have an ethnicity, it's not to imply that every individual within an ethnic group is monolithic. We don't all like the same things or have the same interests or have exactly the same culture or traditions, but it's a way of talking about, and again, the Bible talks about it this way, it's a way of talking about groups of people. But when we say race, race is something different. Race is a much more problematic word. So when when we we use the word race, race is about a grouping of people based on the I will say, now-debunked idea that people belong to distinct biological groups determined by physical features. See, race is a biological myth. Race doesn't exist theologically, and race doesn't exist biologically, but it does exist socially. Because there was a myth that was perpetrated for a long time in the modern world that said people belonged to distinct biological groups, walls were erected between those ethnic groups. Walls got bigger and wider and stronger between ethnic groups because of this myth of race biologically and theologically, there is one race, the human race. And the human race has erected walls in between different groups of people and said, I'm, I'm this kind of a person based on heritage, based on language, based on tradition, based on culture, or worse yet, based on biology. And say, well, you're a different kind of person. And sadly, and sadly, there has been both ethnic superiority and racial superiority, people who honestly believe that their ethnic group is better than other ethnic groups, or the people that they are similar to biologically are better than or superior to other groups of people. This is a tragedy, a tragedy that these walls have been built between us. So it's important for us to recognize the difference between these two words and these two ideas because when we talk about the walls between ethnic groups, when we talk about this idea of ethnic superiority and some people feeling like their ethnic group is better than other ethnic groups, that's not necessarily the same as racism because it may not have anything to do with the way a person looks. It may not have anything to do with their physical features. It may just be that you believe or someone believes that their traditions and their culture and the group they belong to are better than other cultures or traditions or people who speak other languages or people that are from other places. And that may or may not have any overlap with the way people look. It may not have anything to do with physical features. But all of these walls, all of these walls that existed in the first century, that existed prior to the first century, that exist now in the 21st century, all of these walls are a tragedy. Some of the walls are so tall, it's hard to see over them. And others may be much shorter, and people step over them all of the time. But Jesus wants us to participate in tearing down these walls. And we can't tear them down accidentally. We don't accidentally tear down walls. We can accidentally overlook walls. We can accidentally not see the walls that are there. We can accidentally start decorating the walls and not realize that there are other people on the other side of that wall. But if we're going to tear down the walls that exist between ethnic groups, then we have to partner together with Jesus and we have to acknowledge that they're real and that they exist and that Jesus wants to bring people together. Jesus wants to bring humanity together. He wants to bring together all the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve and bring us together into one multilingual, multinational, multi-ethnic family where we love one another as brothers and sisters. Regardless of language, regardless of nationality, regardless of culture, regardless of history, regardless of physical features, we come together in the family of Jesus and love one another as brothers and sisters. And if we're going to understand the way this works itself out in the New Testament, we have to understand a little bit of history. So today we're going to talk about the city of Caesarea. Caesarea is a was a major city that existed on the Mediterranean coast in Judea. It was constructed by Herod the Great, and they called him Herod the Great because he had all kinds of great building projects, and Caesarea was one of those building projects. It was constructed, obviously it's named after Caesar, Caesar Augustus. It was constructed to say, this is how great Rome is. This is how great Caesar Augustus is, and this is how great Herod is. And eventually it became the capital of Roman occupation in Judea, because the Romans were these foreign occupiers who were occupying and controlling Judea. And the city of Caesarea became the capital of Roman occupation. Here's a picture of what the city might have looked like. It was a very Roman city. Even though it exists in Palestine, even though it was in Judea, it was a very Roman city. It was a very pagan city. It was a a city whose presence was supposed to remind everyone just how big and strong and awesome Rome was. Now, Now, I want you to picture yourself. I want you to picture yourself being a first-century Jewish farmer living in Judea, living not far from Caesarea, and because of trade or because of family or because of travel, you have to come in close proximity with the city of Caesarea. How would you feel as you traveled past this city and you saw the pagan temples and you saw the architecture? And coming out of the city, you heard the tromping of Roman shoes. You heard the marching of Roman soldiers. You could see the sun glittering off of their armor. And every time you saw that sight, and every time you heard that sound, you're reminded that these foreigners are occupying your nation. The nation that you believe God gave us this land and now these foreign occupiers are here and they tax us. They tax us mercilessly. They take away our money. They take away our crops. They take away our freedom. They, They corrupt our culture. They bring this paganism in here. They bring this outsider way of thinking in here. They're destroying everything. And you probably even remember times where they took advantage of you. Maybe they took advantage of some of your female relatives. Maybe they took, maybe a Roman soldier took his pack, and as he was allowed by law to do, he forced you to walk a mile and carry your, his stuff as if you were a mule, as if you were an animal. He made you carry his belongings. Maybe you remember personal insults and the way that they treated you like trash and garbage. And you wanted nothing more than for these Romans to be gone. Can you imagine how much you would hate this city and everything this city stood for? So it's probably not surprising that in about 66 AD, there was a a revolt, a Jewish revolt that started in Caesarea, and it would be a spark that would bring the entire region to all out War. In fact, historians say that 20,000 Jewish people were slaughtered in one hour in Caesarea. And eventually it would lead to the absolute destruction of the city of Jerusalem. The zealots hated the Romans so much. And I, I think that we can empathize, can't we? Because the Jewish people were being oppressed by these invaders, and they built this city as a testimony to their right to do whatever they wanted to do. Now, of course, the Romans felt like they were bringing peace to the world. The Romans felt like they were bringing law and order to the world. The Romans felt like they were making the world a better place by spreading the peace of Rome everywhere. But of course, the Jewish people didn't feel that way at all. And the story we're about to read is about 30 years before the revolt in Caesarea, before the war begins. But things were already a powder keg and had been for a very long time. Various ethnic groups that are at one another's throat, everybody thinking that they're right and that the other people are wrong, everybody fearing and hating one another. So if you've got your Bible, look at Acts chapter 10 and verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Now, a centurion, you may know this already, but because of various reforms that happened in Rome and how the Roman armies were structured, the centurion oversaw about 80 troops. And those 80 troops were part of a cohort, and there would be six centuries as part of the cohort. So there'd be 480 soldiers as part of this cohort. And and this man, Cornelius, was one of the centurions that oversaw 80 soldiers within this Italian cohort. Now, there's a, a ton of information packed into this one little verse, isn't there? They're in Caesarea, this very Roman city, constructed to display the glory and the might and the strength of Rome within Judea, the capital of Roman occupation within Judea, and this man is a centurion, so he is an officer, a commanding officer, over 80 soldiers, and he's part of the Italian cohort. So he's not someone who was recruited from Syria, from Palestine, from anywhere around Jerusalem. This is probably someone from Rome, someone who's a Latin speaker, this is someone who is from a very different place, who has a very different culture, who has a very different politic, right? Yeah. Who thinks that the world ought to be organized in a very different way than most of the people around him, than most of the Christians, for that matter, at the time. Look at verse 2. But the, here's what, the way Luke describes Cornelius. He says he was a devout man who feared God, with all his household. And he gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. Now that to me is amazing, isn't it? And I wish I could like sit down with Cornelius and be like, wow, I mean, tell me about that. How did that come to be? You worship Yahweh? You worship the God of Israel? You're a Gentile. You're an uncircumcised Gentile. You're a Roman. You're part of the Italian cohort. You're surrounded by all of the gods of Rome, and yet you figured out that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of Israel, is the one true and living God. How did you figure that out? Who told you about him? I would like to know, how did Cornelius come to believe in and fear and pray to the God of Israel, and give alms generously, knowing that his generosity is a reflection on the God that he worships and fears and prays to and serves? How did this come to be? But also, just as importantly, what was that like? What was that like, being a God-fearing Roman? What was it like, worshiping the God of Israel when you're a Roman commanding officer? What did your troops think of your faith? What did your soldiers who answered to you think of your faith? What did the other centurions in your cohort think of you? What did your commanding officers think of you? Did they see you as a traitor? Because you didn't worship the the Roman gods that made everyone safe, that they believed kept everyone safe? And then how did the Jewish people think of you? The Jewish people still thought of Cornelius as being unclean, as someone they wouldn't even share a meal with. If he went to Jerusalem, where the temple was, he wasn't allowed to go into the temple. He had to stay in the court of the Gentiles. And don't you know that if a Roman shows up in Jerusalem, people had to look at him sideways and think, I don't know about this guy, or I I know what this guy's like, or I know what he's all about. What was it like? Worshipping a god and, and constantly feeling like an outsider within your own people group, within the Roman people group, but also within the Jewish people group. What was that like? And it's an amazing faith, isn't it? An amazing faith that you would hold on to that would would go against the grain of your culture where everywhere you turn, you kind of feel like an outsider. You feel like an outsider within your own people, and then you feel like an outsider within the people who worship this God. But here, look, listen what it says in verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. That's amazing language, isn't it? Because it's, it's like sacrificial language. The way that a sacrifice would ascend as a memorial, the smoke of the incense or the smoke of the burnt offering would ascend as a memorial to God. And God says, even though you're barred from the temple, even though you can't go and offer sacrifices, your prayers and your almsgiving, your generosity, it has ascended as if you offered incense, as if you offered burnt offerings. It's ascended as a memorial to God. And that's incredibly shocking, isn't it? That is incredibly shocking because the average Jewish person, not just the Pharisee, but the average Jewish person, would look at someone like Cornelius and say, you're unclean. You're a Gentile. Even if you worship our God, you don't really belong with us. Maybe they would try to to force him to become a proselyte and become circumcised and really become part of us, but as it stood, they would look at him and say, you are unclean, you don't have any part with us. And so if they found out, God hears his prayers too. God remembers him too. God loves him too. Because isn't that what God is saying through this angel? I hear you too. I hear your prayers. I see your faith. I see your generosity. And I remember you. Just as I remember my covenant people. I hear you. I see you. I love you. Would it shock you? Would it shock you if you were a first-century Jewish peasant or farmer? Would it shock you to know that God hears Cornelius' prayers too? And that God remembers Cornelius too? And that God loves Cornelius too? Maybe to bring it home a little more seriously, right now, right now, are there people in the world that it might shock you if you heard, hey, God hears their prayers too. God listens to them too. God loves them too. Cornelius isn't a Christian yet. And he's part of a despised group, at least by the Jewish people. So would it surprise you to know that people who look very differently than you, people who have very different politics than you, people who think very differently than you, people who are part of groups that are very different than the groups you're a part of, that maybe God hears their prayers too, and that God remembers them too, and that God loves them too? If we're honest... Maybe we have some biases, maybe we have some prejudices, maybe we have some assumptions that need to be set aside, and we need to reflect on the fact that if the first century Jewish world could be shocked by this news that God hears Roman prayers too, God loves Roman people too, God remembers the faith and the generosity of Roman people also, if they could be shocked by that news, then maybe we might be shocked by that news as well. Maybe if we knew all the people that God hears, and God listens to, and God remembers, and God is actively working in their life to bring about their salvation and their good, maybe it might shock us too. Look at verse 5. He says, and now, this is the angel, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner. Whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who had attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now, as I was reading this, a thought came to me, and I thought, why didn't the angel just tell him the gospel? Right? Why didn't the angel just tell him the gospel? I mean, Cornelius needed to hear the gospel. He needed to hear who Jesus was and what Jesus has done and what Jesus is doing and what Jesus is going to do. He needed to hear the gospel. He needed to be baptized for the forgiveness of his sins. He needed to hear the gospel. But instead of saying, hey, I've got a gospel message for you. Sit down. I've got a sermon for you. The angel didn't do that. The angel said, I need you to send men and go get Peter. And Peter's going to come here and Peter's going to tell you something that you need to hear. So why is it that God doesn't do that sort of thing. That God doesn't just send angels to everyone and tell everybody the gospel. God has a a host of angels at his disposal, right? And he he could send angels to the deepest, darkest parts of the world, places in the world you can't get there by car, you can't get there by plane, and God could just send angels there and tell them the gospel, but that's not how God operates. Why did he send an angel to say go go get peter and have peter come here in the flesh why because this is how the gospel is shared with one another the gospel is shared with one another not just through words but through people the, the gospel has to take on flesh the gospel took on flesh in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment of the gospel. And then the apostles took on the gospel. They embodied the gospel. And now you and me, we get to be the embodiment of the gospel. And God sends us to people. It's not enough to just send a message to people. In fact, the angel didn't say, hey, ask Peter. He'll write you a note. He'll send you He'll send you a letter. He says, no, no, no. Peter needs to come here and share this message with you. Why? Because the gospel, the gospel is as much about reconciling people with one another as it is reconciling people with God. This is why the gospel has to be shared by and with people. This is why the angels don't proclaim the gospel. This is why we proclaim the gospel. It's because the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do, is as much about reconciling people with one another as it is reconciling people with God. And we have this tendency to just focus on the latter and forget the former. We have this tendency to think the gospel is just about you being reconciled with God. But if that was the case, then Peter would be unnecessary. But Peter was necessary because God had a plan to build a multi-ethnic family. And he wanted Jewish people in his family. And he wanted Roman people in his family. And he wanted Samaritans in his family. And he wanted Greeks in his family. And he wanted the people that the Greeks... Assumed and called barbarians in his family. God wanted everybody in his family. And in order for that to happen, in order for that to happen, people had to embody the gospel and take the gospel to one another. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? That means that there are people in other groups. Maybe they look like you. Maybe they don't. Maybe they vote like you. Maybe they don't. Maybe they think very similar to you. Maybe they don't. Maybe they are very drastically different from you. God loves them too. And they need to hear the gospel. They need someone who will be the embodiment of the gospel, the embodiment of the good news, and will take the good news to them. God needs you to be part of that process. Again, Jesus is going to accomplish this. Jesus has accomplished this. Jesus is accomplishing this. Jesus will accomplish this. He will make and continue to make his multi-ethnic family. The only question is, will you participate? And I don't know about you, but I want to participate. I want to be part of that. I want to be part of that. I want you to be part of that. So the question is, who's your Cornelius? Who's your Cornelius? Who's the person in your world, in your community, in your life, and God is working in their life. He loves them. He hears them. He's working to bring about their salvation and their good. And he wants you to be part of that process. He wants you to be part of that process. Oh, he could find a million different ways to just give them a message. But he wants to give them more than a message. He wants to give them a people He wants them to be part of this people. And when I think about our community, and I I go to parks in our community, and I go to the grocery store in our community, and I walk around the streets in our community, I think, what a beautifully diverse, multi-ethnic community that needs Jesus. Our community needs Jesus. Which means our community needs the people who know Jesus. They don't, they don't just need a message. It's not enough for us to just send words or ideas to people. We need to send ourselves to people. We need to build relationships with people. We need to recognize that even the people that don't look like you or vote like you or talk like you or think like you, God loves them too and that God is working for their salvation just as much as he's working for your salvation and that those people need Jesus and they need people who know and love Jesus. So be those people. Be the people who love the people who don't look like them or think like them or vote like them because you recognize that God loves them and that God wants them to be part of his multinational, multilingual, multi-ethnic kingdom. The first century Jewish world, they were afraid of the Romans. They despised the Romans. They, They hated the Romans. And we can see why, can't we? They were being oppressed by the Romans. And a lot of them were itching for a fight because they were afraid, because they had animosity. But Jesus tried desperately to get everyone to understand that the greatest threat to their life wasn't the people they feared. The greatest threat to their life was the fear of the people they feared. And that's true for us as well. The greatest threat to your life isn't the people that you fear. The greatest threat to your life is your fear of the people you fear. Jesus wants to change us so we don't fear anyone anymore. So we don't fear what anyone can do to the body because we know that Jesus will bring us back from the dead. We know that we are forgiven. We know that we're loved. We know that we have a family. We know that we have a kingdom. We know that we have a future. We know what Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing, what Jesus will do. And so we don't have anyone to fear. We don't have anyone to hate. We don't have anyone to despise. He's changing us, changing us individually and changing us collectively. So let's reflect this week. Who's my Cornelius? Who's your Cornelius? Who's the person who needs Jesus? and who needs you to tell them about Jesus. Our shepherds are here for you. We're here for you. Anything we can do as together we stand and sing this song.